From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Me Too movement put a spotlight on sexual harassment, but has it also led to an increase in gender harassment? We'll explore the difference and what new research in Colorado indicates. Then, a new app to identify opioid addiction in its early stages, developed by a 13-year-old who says that kids have a leg up on innovative ideas. We haven't been exposed to the entire world yet. So whatever ideas we have are outside the box. They have no boundaries. Plus, exploring Colorado through the lens of language, we visit what was at one point the most ethnically diverse city in the state. You know, I didn't have to speak English until we moved out of this neighborhood. And a Colorado team is keeping the glory days of America's pastime alive. Oh, we'll rally from the hills and we'll rally from the plains. Touting the manly sport of baseball. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The Me Too movement empowered women across the country to speak more openly about sexual assault and harassment. But an unexpected result of the movement? An increase in gender harassment in the workplace. That's what one study from CU Boulder found. Researchers surveyed a group of 500 women twice, once in 2016 and again in 2018. Many of them said they experienced less sexual harassment in 2018, but they noticed more gender harassment. Stephanie Johnson is the lead author on this study. She's an associate professor at CU Boulder Leeds School of Business. Hi, Stephanie. Hey, good morning. Can you start just by explaining the difference between sexual harassment and gender harassment? For sure. So gender harassment's technically part of the broader term of sexual harassment, um, where sexual harassment might include things like unwanted sexual attention and sexual coercion. Gender harassment is more negative comments or behavior toward women on a basis of their gender, but not necessarily in a sexual way. Um, that being said, it's still part of what we consider sexual harassment. You didn't actually intend to look at rates of gender and sexual harassment in your workplace study necessarily when you first began this research. What was it you were wanting to know? We were interested in understanding more about women's workplace experiences. And this was back in 2016 uh, when we started with a qualitative study And of the women we interviewed, 80% of them mentioned sexual harassment as part of their workplace experiences. And that was pretty surprising to us in 2016. So we ended up doing that first survey and found kind of similar rates of sexual harassment. And then it was very soon after that the Women's March happened and then the Me Too movement really got started. And of course, we knew that these rates were so high because of that study, but we decided a year after Me Too started to go ahead and follow up and see if anything had changed. And how did women's experiences at work change between 2016 and 2018? Well, from our data, it looks like unwanted sexual attention and sexual coercion have both decreased, which I think is good. Um, Women that we interviewed talked about the fact that they felt their organization was taking it more seriously, being more proactive, not just trying to sweep sexual harassment under the rug, but really taking it uh, seriously. But at the same time, they seem to experience more gender harassment or microaggressions, just like general negativity from men. And can you share some stories that you heard from women who experienced gender harassment just to help us understand that dynamic a little better? 
Yeah, for sure. So uh, one woman told me this is kind of a funny story that she was actually in a bystander intervention training. So it's really intended to reduce sexual harassment. And this is something I really advocate for. But she's sitting there in bystander intervention training and um, her male manager walked up to her and said, hey, I found your name tag on the floor. And she said, really? And he says, yeah. And he hands her a sugar packet. It's like implying that her name is Sugar. Mm. Uh, And that's like kind of a minor one. But another one um, that a woman told me was about sort of being sarcastic with a male coworker in her workplace who had asked her, how did you get this great author to be your mentor? And she said, oh, we, we call it networking. Have you heard of it? And he says in response, don't ever talk to me that way again or I will smack you in the face. And that's a coworker at work saying that. Wow. So, and another interesting thing I saw in your study is women's self-esteem, it has improved in the study group. How does that connect with these rates of harassment? Yeah, it's a great question. So we saw in 2016 a very strong correlation between uh, being gender harassed and um, other types of sexual harassment and having lower self-esteem or greater self-doubts. And in 2018, that relationship is weaker, meaning that sexual harassment isn't having the same negative effect on women that it used to. And in our qualitative interviews, we asked women why they think that is. And in large part, they talked about the fact that now, post Me Too, they realize that being harassed, whether it's gender harassment or sexual, other types of sexual harassment, isn't their fault. It's not something they did. Uh, Back in the 2016 interviews, women talked about wondering what they had done to deserve the sexual harassment. And in 2018, that tone was really different. It was, they realized that if most women are being sexually harassed for gender harassment, we found 93%, that it's probably nothing they did. Because if it were, it's something that all women were doing. And at the same time, women felt much more supported by other women um, and free to tell them what's happening and more validated with their experiences. If they'd been harassed or mistreated in the workplace, I think a lot of women feared uh, this is, maybe I'm too sensitive, but hearing that this is such a pervasive problem and it has such a negative effect on so many women made them realize, well, okay, I didn't do anything to deserve this. And it is, it does have a negative impact on work. And I wonder if that increased self-esteem, do you think that that led to an increase in reporting or do you think that there are more instances of gender harassment? Uh, Well, in this case, I don't believe that the increased reporting has to do with um, just having the increased self-esteem because we saw decreases in the other aspects of sexual harassment. So I don't know if it makes sense. There are some data to show overall more women are reporting sexual harassment. And I don't expect that's because more women are being sexually harassed. I do think they feel more empowered to actually go to HR and report what's happening. Um, but I think instead they just feel more free to talk about it and seek support for something that's happening to them. And it's probably worth noting that you are seeing these declines in sexual harassment, but that doesn't mean that it's going away. How much of a decline did you observe and was it significant? Yeah, so for sexual coercion, uh, the reports decreased from 25% of women saying that they had experienced sexual coercion to 16% of women, and that's a significant difference. 
And for unwanted sexual attention, the decline was even greater from 66% of women in 2016 to 25% of women in 2018 said that they were experiencing unwanted sexual attention from their male coworkers. I think it's worth noting that the majority of the women you interviewed are white and their experiences may differ from women of color. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. So these are primarily um, white-collared, white women, ages 25 to 40. So their experiences aren't necessarily um, indicative of what all women are experiencing. We might expect that women who have less power to start with, so women of color or women in low-wage jobs or women who are contingent workers or work on tips, things like that, who don't have as much power to step forward and go to an HR department um, and report sexual harassment might still be experiencing the same levels of sexual harassment. And I think that's a really important thing to continue looking at in the future. Stephanie, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for your time. Stephanie Johnson is an associate professor at CU Boulder Leeds School of Business. She researched experiences with sexual harassment and gender harassment in the workplace. Opioid addiction has devastated many Colorado families. More than 500 people died from overdoses in 2017 from both prescription opioids and illegal opioids such as heroin. Gatanjali Rao from Lone Tree has invented an app to help physicians and opioid users monitor addiction. Local scientists were wowed, not just by the invention, but by the fact that the inventor is just 13 years old. Hi, Gatanjali. Hi. Before we get to your invention, I have to know, what are your hobbies? How does a 13-year-old inventor unwind? So I love baking. Um, I'm not the best at it, but it, it is fun for me. And I fence as well. It's a very, very unique and very, it's very stress relieving if you think about it. What do you like to bake? Um, a lot of things. Um, I do cookies. I, but I've burnt cookies, which are literally just cookie dough cookies. So... <laughs> We have to, we we have boundaries. <laughs> and the name of your invention is Epioni, and that's a nod to something else you enjoy. I hear mythology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Epioni is a device that diagnoses prescription opioid addiction, and I love mythology. So I decided to go for a unique and new name that I'd never heard of. And what does that name mean in mythology? Tell me about the connection. So Epioni means the Greek goddess of soothing of pain. And you're going into ninth grade at STEM School Highlands Ranch. You're a finalist competing in the Technovation World Pitch Summit on August 15th. In the competition, girls ages 10 to 18 develop mobile apps to solve problems in their communities. What gave you the idea to make an app relating to opioid addiction? So we've had a family friend for a while who had, who one of the parents had been faced an accident, in a car accident, and when they were prescribed opioids, um, they started to use it, and it kind of got out of control. And the scary thing is that most of the time when you get an addiction, when you know about that addiction, it's too late to do anything about it. So based on that, I really wanted to find a way to diagnose addiction at an early stage. And talk about how you find a problem to research and how you settled on opioid addiction. Mm -hmm. So the way that I find a problem to usually research is just by watching the news, by looking around me, just observing the world as it is and seeing what can be changed, what can be improved and what 
what really has an impact on this world. So when I saw Opioid Addiction, I had a personal connection to it. I saw it all over the news for a while. And it was just scary to see that something like that could actually happen and that just kids like me could become addicted to prescription opioids. And I just wanted to get rid of this problem as soon as possible. What did your research show about what was out there already for doctors and opioid users when it comes to diagnosing and managing addictions? So after looking online, researching, and talking to a few physicians, I also found that what they use today is pretty far-fetched. It won't always give you the most accurate answers, so they use a database to look at what prescription opioids have been bought. And then they also use, just by observing the signs and symptoms of a patient, which can only go up to a certain point, it can't really define if you have an addiction or not. And in the simplest language that you can think of, can you explain to me what your app does? Yeah, so the app itself is connected to a device, and the device is where you would insert a sample. I'm still researching what liquid sample you would put in there, but I'm looking at blood right now. And when you insert it into the device, off of the app, you click take picture, and it takes a picture with the device. And the reason for this is after research, I found out that there's a certain gene in our body called the mu opioid receptor and when it is in contact with more opioids than your body can take in it starts to produce even more protein than before and so i'm adding a certain antibody and an enzyme so that when there's more protein involved the color of the sample becomes darker and so when i click take picture it takes a picture with the device and the device then sends this back to the app. So the app is pretty much the controlling system for all of this. And the app takes that image and compares it to a set of pre-calibrated images. So it can put you on a scale of where your addiction status is, and it gives you some action items that you can take as well. So the app is built on this idea of detecting a specific protein created by a gene that relates to addiction. Yes, exactly. And is there a gene that is specifically related to opioid addiction? Yeah, so the one I've been looking at is OPRM1, and it's specifically related to prescription opioid addiction at this point. And it, it it's very interesting how it works specifically for that. And I'm still researching what else it looks for, but I, th- I think it also has something to do with alcohol disorders as well. So I'm looking at always looking at opportunities to expand my device towards other illnesses or other addictions as well. And talk to me about how a physician would use Epione. So my goal is for it to be something that would be sitting in the doctor's office. So when a patient comes in with some sort of illness and the doctor has to prescribe them a prescription opioid, they would quickly do a screening on the patient to make sure they're not already on something and their health is standard and everything is looking good before they can prescribe them the medicine that they need. You created the app by coding at home, but you're going to labs at CU Denver to test it. And you just emailed researchers there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what have you heard back? So I'm actually at a lab at CU Denver right now. I go there pretty much once a week or depends on how busy I am. But I go there and just do testing with the protein, looking at the receptors and looking at how much protein the receptors make. And I obviously can't test it on humans yet so I'm using yeast strains so kind of like a fake human if you think about it and um, so yeast could be a fake human in this yeah I'm pretty much getting it addicted um, just to see how much protein it produces 
<laughs> and this isn't your first invention. We spoke with you two years ago when you were named America's top young scientist for coming up with a new test for lead in drinking water. Where does that invention stand now? Are you refining it? So at this point, Tethys, which is the name of the invention, it is at the point where I'm finishing up my accuracy testings and I'm working on creating prototypes and devices to give out to places like Flint, water sources, and schools to do more field testing around them. We know that many inventors tend to be young. You're very young. What is it about the way kids see the world that maybe makes it easier for them to invent? I honestly think that, no offense to the adults, but I honestly (laughs) think that kids come up with much better ideas than adults. And mainly, it's because we haven't been exposed to the entire world yet. So whatever ideas we have are outside the box. They have no boundaries. We're doing what we want instead of what we can do. I love that. We talked about your favorite hobbies. What is your favorite subject in school? Computer science, for sure. Why is that your favorite? Um, I've always loved the idea of just doing hands-on activities. Um, One time in our class, we took apart an entire computer and put it back together in a 30-minute time limit. Um, We created viruses. Um, and attacked other people's computers within our school. Nothing nothing too dangerous. Um, and it was just a test to see you know, how many people would fall for it. And it was a lot of fun. And um, I just can't wait to take that class again next year. You have a real passion for coding and for girls getting involved in STEM fields. What do you think could be done to encourage more kids to get involved and more girls to get involved in projects like this? I think that we're making a really good effort in having more girls involved within STEM fields. Um, But I think it's also important that we show girls like me or younger that there are role models in STEM and that there are female role models and that girls can do it too is kind of what I've been looking at. And I aim to be one of those people. That's exciting. Thanks, Katanjali. Yeah, thank you. 13-year-old Gatanjali Rao from Lone Tree. She invented an app to help physicians and opioid users monitor addiction. She will take part in a world competition next month. The line between two school districts can mark huge differences in the racial and ethnic makeup of the student body and in the amount of money districts have to spend. Colorado has historically had fewer of those big divides than other states, but they seem to be growing here, according to a new report. My colleague Mike Lamp spoke about it with CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. What kind of gap specifically did this report from something called EdBuild examine? Yeah, EdBuild is a national nonprofit that analyzes how fairly school districts are funded. And the report looks at bordering school districts that substantially divide neighbors by race and revenue. And revenue by revenue, that means how much the district gets from the state for education. And they say these borders are creating gulfs of opportunity between districts that are just down the street from one another. In Colorado, there were 17 divisive borders out of 172. So that means 72 2,000 students attend school next door to districts that are at least 25 percentage points whiter and 10% better funded. And what were some of the biggest gaps that this report found? 
First off, so about 9% of Colorado students live in what are called disadvantaged districts. And I'll give you an example. So take Aspen and Lake County. Aspen generates about $13,000 more per student than the district next door. That's Lake County. That's a 39 percentage point divide. It's one of the biggest in the country. And in other parts of Colorado, in the report, you saw a lot of students of color in one district and far fewer right next door. And what is the effect on students of that kind of uh, disparity? First, uh, there isn't enough money to get at-risk students or students with special needs on grade level. Gifted students or those learning English, they might not get the services they need. Uh, But many would argue that Colorado is so chronically underfunded. That includes students in Aspen. State funding in Colorado is $2,800 per student below the national average. And here's a figure that's quite staggering. Uh, The amount of funding state lawmakers have withheld from Colorado's public schools over the past decade is $8.1 billion. That's a B. That means schools were supposed to get $8.1 billion more than they have now. Well, how do districts that are right next to each other end up with such big gaps in funding? Well, the first thing is housing patterns. So, you know, wealthy people tend to live in one area that impacts the schools, poor people in another. But the report argues that the way states fund schools makes things worse. And that's based on a state funding formula. And how does that formula work? Well, the way it works in Colorado is that some states or some districts that have a high cost of living, like Aspen, get more money from the state because it costs more to pay teachers and staff. The report notes that those districts that get more from the state tend to be wealthier and sometimes whiter. Lake County next door, a poorer district, actually gets less from the state. The cost of living isn't as high. And Lake County residents, too, must tax themselves more than uh, Aspen voters. A more equal system might have Aspen taxpayers shouldering a larger burden so the state wouldn't have to funnel as much money to that resort town. In turn, that would free up more state resources for a district like Lake County. But what the report doesn't address is the fact that even if Aspen voters wanted to bump up their tax rate, state law prevents them. This report that you've been looking at found, you know, fairly few of these neighboring school districts with that kind of disparity. But that number is growing. And why is that? Well, districts in Colorado can raise special taxes called mill levy overrides, and some voters might have seen those on their ballot. Because $8.1 billion has been withheld from schools since the recession, many districts have tried to get voters to pass these mill levy overrides. Some can, some can't. And that's increased inequity. And so now a committee of state lawmakers is looking at making school funding more fair. And what kind of ideas are they looking at? One idea is to change state law to make all school districts have the same property tax rate like they used to once upon a time. And second is changing the formula. It hasn't changed since 1994. So one idea is target more money to students based on their needs instead of things like whether districts have a high cost of living. But other lawmakers say, hey, changing the formula won't help unless there's first more money overall available for schools. And one thing they're going to have to deal with is that voters have rejected several attempts to raise more money for schools. Well, Jenny, thanks a lot. Thank you. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine speaking with Mike Lamp about new numbers showing unequal funding in Colorado schools. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with the ongoing impact of the bark beetle on our state. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. On the 
outside, Neil Pollock was a pretty successful guy, a published author, even a Jeopardy champion. Returning champion, a writer from Meanwhile, inside, he was harboring an addiction. I had probably the most extraordinary experience of my life. And I went back to my hotel room, shoved a towel under the door, and smoked a joint. Cannabis Addiction, on the latest episode of On Something, the new podcast from CPR. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Once upon a time, Pueblo was the most ethnically diverse city in the state. At the turn of the 20th century, the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company steel mill drew immigrants from across the world. Curator Victoria Miller is with the Steelworks Center of the West. There are about 30 different nationalities represented on the payroll. All those workers shaped the city Pueblo has become. CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce says you can still find evidence of the city's rich heritage even today. Vince Galliano's first language was Italian. It's all he spoke until he was about five. You know, I didn't have to speak English until we moved out of this neighborhood. Not because he came from the old country, though his parents did. No, it's because he lived in Pueblo's Italian neighborhood, right across the interstate from the steel mill. Italian's what everybody spoke. And Vince is now the fourth generation of his family to run the cramped and colorful Galliano's Italian Market, a place you go for your meats, prosciutto, pancetta. We make our own Italian sausage, and that's what we're known for. Imported cheeses, Italian desserts, and so much pasta. So we probably have about 200 cuts of pasta. We still carry a lot of the products that my uncle carried in the 1920s. We still have almost the same customer base, but we're three or four generations down. He says when he was growing up in the 1970s, Pueblo's ethnic groups still mostly had their own little enclaves. The Italians had this neighborhood. Then you had over the Mesa Hill, you had the Slovenian community. Two groups that he says did not really mix. You weren't able to go over that hill and they weren't able to come over this hill. Back then, the CF&I steel mill was the economic heart of those communities. The Steelworks Center of the West Museum tells its history. Curator Victoria Miller walks up to an enlarged spreadsheet from 1924, showing where the nearly 11,000 workers came from. The principal elements uh, were from Southern and Eastern Europe. Spain, Italy, Greece. Bohemia, Bosnia, Bulgaria, Croatia. The Steelworks Center reports in the 19-teens, workers at the mill and associated mines spoke more than 40 different languages. Slovakia and Slovenia. The mill was a place where 20th century immigrants could put their working class skills to use in the new world without knowing English. And CF&I accommodated that. As an example, the museum used to be the medical building for the mill you can still see the traces of how staff communicated with patients. Here in the museum, we have uh, several stripes that are printed on our floor. Stripes printed for the many non-English speakers. They learned from other people that if they were here to see the eye doctor, they followed one color line on the floor. If they were here to see the ear doctor, they would follow another color line. CF&I did provide English classes for their workers and other courses seeking to assimilate them into American culture, that did not mean they stopped using their native tongues. Miller says foreign language newspapers flourished. I would say approximately 20 different newspapers um, that were city-wide publications. 20 different newspapers in 20 different languages, publishing all at the same time. 
Miller slides open a glass display case and delicately pulls one out. So this is one of the Italian newspapers that was written here in the Bessemer neighborhood. Dated April 8th, 1927. The title of the newspaper was La Voce de Popolo. La Voce de Popolo. So the voice of the people. Vince Galliano looks over a photo of the yellowed front page, translating phrases here and there. This is a mind tragedy. Galliano says he still speaks Italian about every day, but it's bits and pieces, maybe responding to a family member on Facebook. He's definitely not fluent anymore. You know, if you don't use it, you lose it. And his kids, they barely speak any Italian. That's true in ethnic communities across Pueblo. Foreign languages and culture fading. Yet, so are some of those old rivalries. The mother of Galliano's children, she came from that Slovenian community over the hill. The people the Italians just were not supposed to mix with. <laughs> we ended up, uh, we ended up intermarrying. A true melting pot near a steel mill. In Pueblo, Dan Boyce, CPR News. Dan's story is part of CPR's look at the languages of Colorado. You can find other places in that series and other pieces, like how to pronounce the names of Colorado communities like Buena Vista, to the unique role sign language interpreters play at concerts at Red Rocks and other music venues at CPR.org. New research at Colorado State University suggests climate change is having a direct impact on spruce beetle outbreaks. Researchers collected and studied more than 70,000 beetles over the past two years. They found warmer temperatures have made trees less resistant to the damage caused by the bugs and have increased the chances of beetle outbreaks in the future. The impact of the beetle goes beyond the trees. I recently spoke with Jake Ivan, a Colorado Parks and Wildlife biologist, about how the beetles are affecting larger animals. Hi, Jake. Hi, Avery. We've heard a lot in the last few years about how bark beetles have destroyed trees, but the overall ecological picture is way more complicated, and it seems surprising to say some mammals are actually benefiting. So which are the so-called winners in this changing landscape? Yeah, I think you know, anytime you have a, a big change like this, you know, there's there's always going to be winners and there's always going to be you know quote unquote losers. Um, and, and in this case, the winners seem to be uh, our ungulate species. So so we found that um, elk and, and mule deer and, and moose are, are among the species that tend to, in some way, shape, or form, respond relatively positively to this change, at least over the the decade or so that that's. Um, ensued since since we sampled these places. And when you're saying positive, you're looking really specifically at the numbers of those populations, right? Uh, actually, no. What, what we what we measured here was more of a, a little bit more coarse than that. What we're what we're looking at is use of these areas. So what we documented is that use of a a particular forest stand might increase after beetles go by uh, if you're an elk. Uh, and same thing for for deer and and for moose. And why are they doing better? Do you think? You know, that's a great question. Um, what we did is, is purely an observational study, so all we can do is sort of postulate why, why that might be. I would, I would imagine, you know, when, you, when the beetles go through an area, they, t- they generally take out the older, more mature uh, overstory trees, and that, that opens up the canopy and allows a lot of 
sunlight down uh, to the ground, and, and you tend to get a big flush of, of grasses and forbs and shrub cover and that kind of thing. And, and we know that, you know, that in terms of forage, that's, that's something that these ungulate species key into. So I, I would guess that, that you know, that, that um, is potentially a big, big driver of their increased use. And does it impact where the elk and deer are migrating if they're using some areas more than others? Are they staying in certain places longer or ending up in places they haven't been in the past? Uh, you know, that's a great question. I, I think a lot of the, you know, the large scale movements in terms of seasonal migrations and that sort of thing are, are probably relatively unchanged. But um, on, on a smaller scale, the, yeah, maybe, um, you know, some places that are more severely impacted and have a, a good flush of this new forage, maybe they choose to spend a bit more time there to take advantage of that relative to what they would have otherwise. Interesting. And which mammals are not doing as well? So one species in particular that, that's not doing well is, is red squirrels, uh, and we and we think we don't know for sure, but we think that's probably related to the loss of cone crops. So most of the most of the cone crop in these these forests is produced by those older, mature trees that have been impacted by the beetles, and so squirrels generally collect all those things and and put them in middens, and that's what they feed off all winter. And if they don't have that, you know, that's probably uh, a, a reason for their for their uh, decreased use in some of these places. And if you're looking mostly at places that they're using, is there a possibility that the squirrels are moving to other areas, or are you thinking that the population itself might be declining? Yeah, I think it, it's probably B. So um, for, for two reasons. One, you know, the, the squirrels are, you know, relatively small animal, and they can't move all that far. And, this, and so the, the beetle impact is so huge relative to their home range and their dispersal capability. I, I'm not sure where else they could go. Uh, but also we've recently done some follow-up work um, to actually measure uh, squirrel density and abundance and have found that that is, has in fact declined. So use has declined and it seems to be mostly due to lower numbers of individuals in these places. And I'm imagining that these are small animals, so they're probably food for other animals. Is the decline of red squirrels rearing up the food chain at all? Uh, it, it could be. It, it, certainly, you're right. The red, red squirrels are, are high on the diet list of, of several other species, like American Martin, for, for one. Uh, another species that we have a lot of interest in here in Colorado is Canada lynx. They're sort of a secondary food item for Canada lynx. Lynx feed mostly on snowshoe hares, which seem to have weathered this bark beetle outbreak okay. But we do know that uh, hair populations fluctuate, and when they go down, when the numbers decline, that, that about the only other thing that, that lynx will eat are, are squirrels. And so they turn to squirrels to get them through those quote-unquote bad times. And so, you know, that, that's potentially one sort of cascading event is, you know, the next time hair numbers um, decline and there potentially aren't as many squirrels around in these forests uh, in a post-beetle environment, then, you know, what happens uh, at that point? And that's worrying because there's some concern about the health of the Canadian lynx population, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, in the United States, uh, the Canada lynx um, is, is listed as a threatened species. So there's you know, this underlying uh, level of concern that you know, it's just naturally a, a rare uh, species. The, the population densities are never very high, and, and there is concern uh, over their continued persistence in Colorado and elsewhere. Yeah. Colorado has a lot of forests and a lot of mammals. How do you study all of these different populations? Yeah, that, that's tough. Uh, the, the way we chose to do it is to make use of these new game cameras or wildlife cameras, camera traps, whatever you want to call them. So we deployed 300 of these things all across the state in uh, subalpine forests from from the New Mexico line to the, to the Wyoming line uh, and left them out there to just to just gather photos and gather pictures of uh, all of the various species walking by. That's how we chose to to sample the 
the mammalian community. So that gets us sort of this presence, absence, use kind of data from that, that kind of collection device. I thought it was really interesting in your study, you called bark beetle infestations important disturbance agents. So in other words, these infestations have been shaping forests for thousands of years. But right. is this infestation different than others? Yeah, it appears it appears so, and I'm no entomologist, but uh, from from the literature that, that that's out there that you can read, uh, th- this particular uh, outbreak is is certainly the largest in in recorded history uh, in terms of both an aerial extent and that there's several beetle species that are all experiencing an outbreak all at the same time, and so that we know of uh, in, in in history, um, it, it's, it's it's certainly the largest that. Um, that we've ever seen. So I know we've had pine trees being infested and spruce trees, so it's not normal to have these different beetles that infest different kinds of trees all at once. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that that's, you know, something that always happens. So, you know, we, we focused on, like you said, pine beetles and, and lodgepole pine trees and spruce beetles and Engelmann spruce trees. But at the same time, there's pinion nips impacting pinion trees and dug fir trees have their own uh, bark beetle, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's all happening at the same time. And is there concern that climate change is responsible for the intensity of this infestation? Uh, yeah, I think um, I think there's ample evidence out there that that's that's at least part of it um, for sure. It, it impacts the the tree side of things, uh, you know, extended drought and, and heat. It, it can be tough on trees and, and can and can make it so their ability to to ward off bark beetle infestations is is diminished. And so you have that in it. But, but the, at the same time that it's sort of impacting trees negatively, all these bark beetles are, are cold-blooded uh, animals. And so the, the, the temperatures during the summer and the amount of, of summer that we have really impacts their ability to, at, at a population level, um, it, it really increases their ability to, to reach these academic, ep- epidemic levels. In, in the grand scheme of things, these are very recent landscape changes that these mammals are adjusting to. How long term do you think this shift is going to be? Uh, it's it's going to be long term. It's it's going to be decades uh, to to even longer. Uh, we, we've certainly changed the composition of of all these forest stands, uh, as well as the structure, and sort of hit the reset button on succession to to earlier successional stages. And that just you know it takes a long time to to work back through. So it it the impacts will be felt for for decades for sure. I'm curious, is there anything that surprised you in your study? Did you find what you expected to? Uh, you know, in some cases, we 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 found things that were expected. You know, the the red squirrel um, decreased use was kind of expected. The increased use by ungulates was was relatively expected. You know, I've done a lot of work on snowshoe hares in the past, and one thing we know about hares is that their densities are very much tied to understory cover. So one thing that kind of surprised me is I thought that. Uh, when we open up the canopy, that through time, hair density would increase uh, in in these places because we're we're gaining understory cover as we let more light uh, into that understory layer. And we didn't really see that. What we saw is across a gradient of from green forest to forest that had been impacted, you know, more than a decade ago, that that hair use of those places didn't really change much. Interesting study. Thank you so much, Jake. Thank you. That's Jake Ivan, Colorado Parks and Wildlife researcher. We spoke in May. He's studying the impact of the bark beetle infestation on other animals. His study aligns with what researchers at CSU are determining, which suggests trees are becoming less resistant to the bark beetle because of climate change.
Baseball is a national pastime that goes back a long way. And during the summer in Colorado, a traveling group of players takes things way back to the 1860s. CPR's Vic Vela recently caught up with some guys who are keeping the glory days of baseball alive. You remember this old song from Terry Cashman called Talkin' Baseball, Willie, Mickey, and the Duke? Talkin' Baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, Talkin' Baseball, the man and Bobby Fella. He just rattles off all these baseball legends who were known by super fun nicknames. The Scooter, the Barber, and the Nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, there's a group of guys playing today who aren't as famous as the ones in that song, but they got great nicknames too, like Digger, Suds, and Texas Mike. And they travel around Colorado playing baseball with rules from an era long before Willie, Mickey, and the Duke played the game. Long before rock and roll. We'll rally round the flag, boys. We'll rally once again, touting the manly sport of baseball. It's the Colorado Vintage Baseball Association. It was formed in 1993, but the players take us back to the 1860s with the uniforms to match. At a game in Broomfield recently, players were wearing era-appropriate hats and long stockings with shirts embroidered with logos written in old English-style lettering. Steven Scorpion Castellani is the league's commissioner. He's wearing knickers, a pillbox hat, and a uniform that features a cavalry-style bib on the front. You will find that uh, every last one of us here on the field is actually a thespian in sorts. We, we do this because we love acting. Uh, the organization was actually founded by a group of Civil War reenactors who just basically got tired of pointing guns at one another. Hey, little rabbit! Keep going, baby! dead! The field they played on was pretty rough, with long grass and weeds popping out. But Castellani says there were no groundskeepers in 1860s baseball. There were no groomed fields as you see today, uh, with dirt base paths. There is no pitcher's mound or hurler's mound, unless you happened to be standing on a gopher hill. That was the exception to that. Uh, the bags were usually made of uh, potato sacks or some such thing filled with dirt. The home plate was just that. It was a plate, like a dinner plate. And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. The group says Colorado's first baseball team, which was called the Colorado Baseball Club, was formed in 1862, not long after gold was discovered here. But there weren't many games played back then because of the Civil War. More teams organized a few years later, including a lot of clubs representing mining communities in Colorado. Here's Roger Haddix, who goes by the name Digger on the field. At that time, uh, in the 1860s and 70s and 80s, you had a lot of the mine teams. So in Frisco, Colorado, there was the Kokomo Mine, so they had a team. In Leadville, they had a team that was known as the Leadville Blues, and so they were they had money, and in 1882, they were the best team in the state because they could actually pay players from the Eastern Leagues to come out there and play at 10,000 feet altitude. Your lineup. Batting first, playing short scout, Roger Digger Haddix. All right, Roger, who's up? On this particular day, Haddix was wearing the uniform of the 1869 Central City Stars team. They were in a battle against the Denver Blue Stockings. 
But I say battle with a grain of salt. They keep score in vintage baseball, but it's certainly not a super competitive league. Robert Mitchell, who goes by the name Buckeye and plays for the Blue Stockings, says the league is more about having fun and having respect for your opponent. So you're acting as if you're in the 1860s. So you'll hear different um, language a little bit, people trying to be more gentlemanly, not charging the mail, not arguing, disclosing whether you were really safe or out. Yeah, he got me, okay. Back in those days, scoring was ridiculously high, and it was common for games to have a ton of errors. A lot of that had to do with the fact that they didn't play with gloves back then, and neither do players from today's Vintage Baseball Association. Here's Buckeye again. Authentic to the period, people weren't very good at playing baseball. So there were a lot of errors. No gloves, no experience. So when you fumble it here, it's exactly what happened back in the day. Bingo. The players also use terminology from back in the day. Chuck Knezevich, who goes by the nickname Suds, explains that in the 1860s, pitchers weren't called pitchers and catchers weren't called catchers. You're a striker. You're not the batter anymore. The behind's the catcher. Uh, the pitcher's the hurler. You're a base tender. Okay. I mean, all those types of things. So none of today's language really even existed no, back then. Baseball was two words back then. Uh, so it was baseball. And batting ninth and hurling, Suds! So what makes these guys get dressed up in old uniforms every weekend, run around on rough playing services, and catch baseballs with their bare hands? Well, Mike, Texas Mike, Michael, says it's for the love of the game. I tell everybody I'm 70 years old standing here talking to you. When I step on the field, I'm 12 again. And then when I step off the field, I'm a 70-year-old that feels like a 12-year-old's been running his body. <laughs> and their effort is appreciated by Mickey Lynn Olmsted, who is one of about 30 fans who attended the game in Broomfield. Yeah, I like that the rules are different. I like the atmosphere. I love the jokes the players play, <laughs> tell, and sometimes they like yell out stuff that's period appropriate, which is hilarious. <laughs> so you have to listen. Right. I think it's great. And they, and they all stand around and sing before the... We love the singing. Yeah. That was great. Singing is yes. great. so awesome. Yeah. Our band of baseball is from bustling Denver City. We come to toss the ball around and sing to you our ditty. And when the club is challenged, how proudly goes the call. Three cheers for the body blue stockings, the champions of them all. Hurrah, hurrah, for the national game, hurrah. Hurrah for the Body Blue Stockings champions of them all. Hurrah, hurrah for the national game. Hurrah, hurrah for the Body Blue Stockings champions of them all. Hip hip, huzzah! Hip hip, huzzah! Hip hip, huzzah! I'm talking baseball. The players' love for 1860s baseball is summed up with an old poem. We used no mattress on our hands, no cage on our face. We stood right up and caught the ball with courage and with grace. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News.
Finally today, the Underground Music Showcase is back this weekend. UMS is a three-day music festival with more than 200 performances along South Broadway in Denver. On Saturday, the showcase will host one of the Mile High City's most enduring indie rock bands, Dressy Bessie. Singer Tammy Elam formed the band in 1996. She and guitarist John Hill, who are married, have released seven albums as Dressy Bessie, most recently this year's Fast Faster Disaster. So just the other day, I went to bed for after death. I want to bask in time, run more down the mountain line. If I say your mind's all red eye, I better let you down real easy. Let you down real easy now. The record features guest spots from members of the Posies and Slater Kinney. It also includes a tribute to the band's original bassist, Rob Green, who died last year. That song is called Mon Cherie. Bessie Bessie performs Saturday at 3 p.m. at the Underground Music Showcase in Denver. CPR's Indy 1023 will carry the performance live. To see the full UMS broadcast schedule, head to CPR.org. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill.